Would you join me in prayer? Lord, our lives can feel like a desert. Our world can be like a desert. But you are the oasis, Lord, the fountain of living water, the one who brings life and vitality and joy. And Lord, some of us, that's what we need today. We need you to refresh us. We ask you to restore us. Draw us near to you, Lord. Closer, ever closer to your heart. And help us in our struggles as well, Lord. They're very real and you know them well. And may this be a time when we just draw near to you, Lord, and lay our burdens at your feet. Thank you that you're here with us. And thank you that you're here for us. And we invite you, Lord, to address our lives, to speak to us. And we will do our best to respond, to submit, to obey, to live the way you want us to live so that we might experience the life that only you can give. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. How you doing? Good. Good. Okay. So today... Uh, we're going to wrap up this series. We've been in this series, I think, about seven or eight weeks called Relationships That Work and Those That Don't. And um, I, I'm going to read one more story from this book, Guard Your Heart. You could tell that if you've been with us that I like this book a lot and I've gotten a lot out of it. But uh, Gary and Barbara Rosberg, who wrote this book called Guard Your Heart, uh, one of the things that they do besides write books and do seminars and conferences is that they have a radio show where people can call in and share their problems and struggles and the Rosbergs get to give some counsel. And I want to share with you this story about a man named David who called into their daily uh, radio program. And uh, this is what happened. They, first, David said all these wonderful things about the program and their ministry and how much he respected them and how much he was blessed by them. And uh, then, uh, David, then um, Gary Rosberg said, thanks, David. Now what can we do for you? And here's what David said. I want in my own life what you two, Gary and Barbara Rosberg, I want in my own life what you two are experiencing. Not a perfect marriage, but one that is rich in honesty and integrity. A marriage that is making a difference in the lives of husband and wife. But we want that kind of marriage for you too, David, Barb inserted. Well, I have a problem, David continued. I have kept something from my wife for over 10 years. I had an affair, but I never told her about it. I never told anyone until recently when I shared my secret with my buddy, my accountability partner. And as I confessed to him, he listened without judging. He took me to scripture. He prayed with me. It's kind of like the way you guys talk about on the radio. He was, quote, God with skin on, unquote, for me. Well, that's great, David, I said. What happened next? And then here's how David continued about his encounter with his accountability partner. He says, after about two hours, with our eyes still wet with tears, he asked me a tough question. What are you going to do about telling your wife? I guess I knew it was coming. I felt both relieved and scared. But then the doubts began racing through my head. What if I do tell Joanne and she walks away? Am I being selfish wanting to come clean with her? Or could this be the beginning of a new level of commitment in our marriage? And then I thought of how you too, again, he's talking to the radio hosts. And then I thought of how you too have coached people through their fears and conflicts and given them a roadmap to restoration. And that's why I'm calling today. I want what you describe as a godly marriage. One with emotional, spiritual, and sexual intimacy that is clean and rich with integrity. How do I get that after what I have done? So Gary Rosberg writes this. He says, Barb and I glanced at each other. We both sensed that healing was about to begin for this young man. And then we began to coach him. And I said, your first step toward the marriage you want is to confess your unfaithfulness to your wife. As long as you hide this secret from her, you will never experience the blessing waiting for you on the other side of your pain. And if you don't own up to your sin, David, Barb added, you will live with that pain every day. 
You will feel guilty whenever you connect with your wife emotionally. When you try to connect with her spiritually, you will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit rise up within you. And when you connect with her sexually, the shame messages from the enemy will ring in your ears. But when you get it out in the open, the healing can start. And all this pain will eventually go away. Well, David was silent as he processed our words. And then I added, David, we encourage you to pray. Ask your buddy to pray for you and know that we will be praying for you too. And then approach your wife with humility, obedience, and courage and seek her forgiveness. And then we concluded the, the call by praying with David on the air, asking God to give him the desire of his heart, a marriage without the deceit and lies that were sabotaging him at every turn. Barb and I couldn't get David off our minds. On the way home that night, we agreed that his marriage was on the brink. What would happen when he confessed his infidelity? Would Joanne reject him and throw him out? Or would she forgive him? Would she call a divorce attorney? Or would she walk through the restoration process with her husband? Good question. I'm going to just leave that question hanging in the air for now. This message is about guard your heart. And I want us to look uh, for a bit at uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 through 27. Uh, let me say a, book, a word about the book of Proverbs. It's, it's an unusual book in the Bible. Uh, Proverbs are kind of like short sayings, of, uh, truthful sayings, and uh, they, they're very impactful sometimes. They contain a lot of wisdom. But the book of Proverbs really describes things that are generally true and what generally happen. Like you may know Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, that is not an ironclad promise from God. That's not a guarantee. What that is saying is that generally, your child will have a much better chance of walking with the Lord during their adult life if you guide them well in, during their, their growing up years, right? So I, I want us to think about Proverbs this way, you know, um, that it's not so much a, a book of promises or guarantees, but it's a book of wisdom, and how to live wisely in God's way so that you might experience God's blessing and the fullness of life that God wants to give. The Proverbs contained in this book of Proverbs are not to be interpreted as prophecies or as promises. What they are is they are short, compact statements that express truths about human behavior and its results that are generally true. If you do this, generally this will happen. They speak of likely results from godly behavior. Uh, they also speak of likely results from ungodly behavior, of wise choices and unwise choices, uh, but without making promises or guarantees. Now, I want us to look at uh, Proverbs chapter 4. And in the first part of Proverbs, these Proverbs were probably written, many of them were from King Solomon, which means about a thousand years before Christ. Uh, and then many of the Proverbs were, were, came from other people as well. Uh, but these were hundreds of years old, even at the time of the New Testament. In the initial cycle of instruction, which is chapters 1 through 9, the writer urges the young man to choose the way of wisdom that leads to life and to shun the ways of folly that, however tempting they may be, lead to death. So, for an example, I want us to look at Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 through 27. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. Again, that's not an ironclad promise, but it's generally true. If you live well, you're likely to live better and live longer. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered or hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Okay? So, this starts off with a lot of positive exhortation and encouragement to listen to God's instruction, uh, live righteously, and life will turn out well for you. Now, there's also in the next section, verses 13, 14 to 17, uh, a kind of a warning. And the warning is this, that there are people around you that can steer you wrong. And, and sometimes they could be your friends, but they're, they're friends who can cause you to fall and uh, lead you toward uh, deceptive ways and ways that are not unhealthy. So here's what it says about this whole thing about peer influence and the dangers of an unhealthy uh, influence from our friends. Verse 14. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel 
Do not travel on it, on this path of wickedness. Turn from it and go on your way. For they, that is the evil, the wicked, cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. And they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. And, you know, one of the things that means to me is we can't listen to everybody and take seriously the counsel of everybody. You know, if you're, if you're one of God's people and you're a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to have your mind renewed, right, uh, by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God because there is so much out there in the world that is, people have all kinds of advice and all kinds of counsel and all kinds of instruction. And how do you determine what's worth following and what's not and what should be taken seriously and what should just be simply disregarded and thrown on the trash heap. And it's the Word of God that's going to help us to be discerning about that. So there's this very strong warning here about people that are going to just try to cause your downfall. Now, I want to tell you this too, that if you're a Christian, whether you're cognizant of it or not, you are involved in a battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's sometimes we refer to it as spiritual warfare, right? And we have an enemy, the enemy of our soul, sometimes called Satan or the devil or the serpent, Sometimes he's called the deceiver. Sometimes he's called the accuser. And he is the one who, he hates God. He hates God's will. And because of that, he hates God's people. He wants to do everything he can to basically draw people away from following the Lord and cause them to follow him or to do things that are going to cause their lives to crash and burn. We have an enemy. If you're married, if you're in a family, we have an enemy that is going to do everything he can to try to undermine our family life and make it unhealthy or dysfunctional. He's going to do everything he can to destroy families and rip them apart. And you can tell in our world today, uh, Satan is winning far too many battles. And God's people can make a difference. And we can be different. Uh, here's uh, Proverbs chapter 4 goes on to say this. Uh, verse 18, Proverbs 4, 18. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of the day. But the way of the wicked, in contrast, is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. That's the way it's describing the wicked, those who are far from God and those who don't care about the Lord or his ways. It says, not only are they stumbling, it's like they're stumbling in darkness. They don't even know what's causing them to stumble and be tripped up. Verse 20, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Again, how important it is that we turn our ears toward, toward God and his words. Turn your ear to my words. Do not them, let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. And, and the way the uh, ancient Hebrews use this word heart, it has to do sometimes with your mind. It's really the seat of your emotions. It's the central, deepest part of you is your heart. That's the way they understood it. So your heart would be kind of the source of your thoughts and your emotions and your will and your decisions and even your actions. So everything kind of flows from your heart. So this is what it says about your heart in verse 20. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. God's word within your heart. Now that could be mem mean memorizing scripture and that's certainly a good way to keep God's word in your heart. But beyond that, it has to do with living in God's truth. You know how many people who would say they're Christians but they never or seldom read God's book and, and, and they have no motivation or no thirst for God's truth. And so basically we name his name and we, we call him our, our Savior and our Lord and yet, to really call Jesus your Savior and Lord, you know what it means? It means you've signed up for a lifetime of following him. And, and that's got to be a daily action and a daily interaction with him, right? It, it's a daily call where every day I would say, uh, Lord, this is the day that you have made. I want to rejoice and be glad in it. And I, I want to learn what you want me to learn. I want to go where you want me to go. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to speak what you want me to speak because I'm living with you and I'm living for you and I've signed up for this whole lifetime of being your disciple, which means a follower of Jesus, right? To be a disciple. Not just someone who's religious or who does religious stuff, but someone whose whole life is turned around by the lordship of Jesus Christ and submitting myself under his lordship and say, Lord, I spent a lot of days and a lot of years living my way and doing my thing and, and doing what I thought was best. And now I'm wise enough and maybe humble enough and broken enough to say, Lord, I want to give you a chance. I want to learn how to do life your way, right? Not my own.
My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. They are like life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Now, this is the verse I wanted to, to get to. It's verse 23, Proverbs 4:23. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Right? And again, your heart is the seat of your emotions and your will and your thinking. It's the central, deepest part of you. He says, above everything else, guard your heart. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Simply concentrate on keeping your heart in love with Jesus. But then also, guard your heart from all the things that would pollute your heart and that would draw you away from good and godly living. Right? Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Now, here's some ramifications of that, some implications of guarding your heart. Uh, it's going to affect your mouth and what you speak and how you speak. Verse 24, keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep correct, corrupt talk far from your lips. So if I'm guarding my heart, it means I'm also kind of watching my mouth and my lips and my words. And whether I'm saying things that are, are helpful and healthy or harmful and hurtful. Right? I've got choices to make. But if I'm guarding my heart, it is going to affect what I say, how I speak, how I talk to people. Right? And then uh, verse 25, it's also going to affect my eyes. Verse 25 says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought. Now, think about this. Like if you're married. You know, when we go to Asia and uh, Cambodia and Vietnam, and we often uh, do some marriage training for Christian leaders there. And one of the things that it took me a while to realize, it took me a few trips before I really got this, but that uh, many of these people that we're, we're working with and teaching and training, and they're, and they're church leaders and they're pastors and they're church planters and all of that. I, I didn't realize at first that most of them were not Christians when they got married. And so we would talk about marriage and biblical principles for marriage and all that. And then often during those conferences, we would have a time where we say, okay, all the couples that are represented here, we want you to stand up and face each other and look at each other, which isn't always that common in their culture. And we want you to look at each other and to hold hands. And, and you can hear them giggle because it's a little awkward or unfamiliar for many of them. And then we invite them, if they would like to, to, to uh, renew their wedding vows. Right? You've seen this happen, right? Where we kind of give a, a wedding vows and you repeat after me, you know, I take you to, me, my, to be my wife and I promise to cherish you and be loyal to you. And, and uh, so we would do that and it was very cool and they loved it. They loved it. But the thing that I didn't realize at first was for many of them, when they got married, they were not believers. They did not have a Christian wedding. They've never had a Christian wedding. So in a sense, our, our training conference there, when we invite them to renew their vows, that is kind of like their Christian wedding, uh, the first one that they've ever really had. And I was thinking about that because this thing says, when you um, get married, then it's supposed to be, you know, a covenant, a covenant of faithfulness, right? To cleave only and always to that one person. And yet there is so much unfaithfulness and infidelity and it's so widespread, not only in our culture, but in theirs as well, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in China. Uh, the whole idea about marital fidelity and marriage commitment for life is just, to a lot of people, it's just strange, it's bizarre because they haven't seen it, they haven't heard it, they haven't seen it modeled that much. They've seen a lot more of divorce and brokenness and dysfunctionality and spousal abuse and abandonment and all of that. So we think, okay, if we're going to guard our hearts and if our relationships, especially our closest relationships, are going to be faithful and healthy for the long haul, then what do we do? How do we guard our hearts? And one of the things here it says is, well, watch your mouth, the things that you talk about, the things that you speak. Is it off color? Is it, you know, inappropriate? Uh, keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt corrupt talk far from your lips. And then watch your eyes. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. And then, uh, and then it talks about your feet also. Be careful where you, you allow your feet to take you. This is in verse 26. 26, give, care, give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. And especially in this context, and if you read the rest of chapter uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, you'll see that uh, part of the context here, it's about marital infidelity. It's about adultery and the dangers of adultery. It's about 
the wayward, wanton woman who, who would lead uh, husbands into immorality. And in that context, we, I think we have to see this, that when God trusts you with relationships, especially a marriage relationship, I think this is also true in our family relationships, that they are to be you know, relationships where, where we want to model the highest and the best. We want to be people of integrity and honesty and commitment. That's why I read that story about, about David who called into the radio station because he kind of crashed it. He blew it. He blew it big time, and now he doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if he can restore his marriage. He's, been, he's being asked by the counselors to do what is probably the scariest thing he's ever done and that's to confess his infidelity to his wife, Joanne. And it's kind of, in a way, risking everything. What will she do? What will she say? Can my marriage be saved? Will she just give up? Will she walk out? Will she never forgive me? And those kind of questions. Watch your mouth. Let your eyes look straight ahead. And then give careful thought to the past for your feet. Be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. So this is kind of like a holistic thing. I, I think these are picturesque, image-rich ways of saying, you know, watch over yourself, your whole self, your mouth, your eyes, your, your hands and feet, and guard your heart. Stay focused, stay pure. Now, how do we do that? Let's say we really want to, you know, determine to guard our heart. And, and, and even the fact that, that the Lord would tell us, you guard your heart means you're responsible. You can't really just blame people and say, well, it's the media all around me or it's the common uh, access on the internet to illicit images or pornography or, or, you know, like you can't even watch TV without seeing something inappropriate. And, you know, and, and I get all that. I think we're surrounded by temptation and our, maybe our, the standards of our culture have gotten lower and lower and increasingly debased. But here's what the Bible says. You guard your own heart. You are responsible. You're responsible for what you see and what you think and what you speak and where you allow your feet to go. You're responsible. Now, how do we guard our hearts? Let me mention some things. And, uh, and this also came from the, the book Guard Your Heart by the Rosbergs. Uh, five vital principles. Five vital principles for defending your marriage and family by guarding your own heart. Number one. Number one, commit to the task of guarding your own heart. And that just means I would accept responsibility for this. Yeah, this is the heart that God has given to me, and I can guard it, and I'm supposed to guard it, and I'm responsible to guard it. So I've got to accept that responsibility. Commit to the task of guarding your own heart. Like I said, Satan is intent on ripping your family apart. Satan wants to undermine your marriage. Satan wants to sow the seeds of unfaithfulness and infidelity. Satan wants to increase the number of people that are addicted to pornography. He's got an evil intent for the human race. And so we need to, I, I don't know, can I say this? I think we need to have a battle mentality. Like to recognize we're in a war and we've got to go to war. To draw a line in the sand and declare to the enemy of your heart, no way, not me. You're getting to other people, you're luring other people away from God and their spouses. No way, not me, not now. And if I have started to stray, it stops here. Not me, not ever. So I think it's making a commitment to guard your heart at all costs. And we remember that story from uh, Joseph and, and how he was being, uh, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and all of that. And Joseph, he stood strong. He said, he said to Potiphar's wife when she's trying to seduce him, how could I ever do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. So in the moment of temptation, he's not just thinking about, oh, can I get away with this without getting caught? Or is there a danger here of her getting pregnant or venereal disease? He's not thinking in those terms. He's thinking about his relationship with God. And he says, how could I ever do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. That's uh, Genesis 39, verse 9. So I would say this. If we want to guard our hearts, first thing we've got to do is we've just got to commit to doing that. To say, you know, I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to go all out to guard my heart so that my heart would totally belong to Jesus, that I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, right? And then if God has called you into marriage, that you would say, other than God, my first loyalty and devotion and commitment, the love of my life is my spouse. And you may not always feel that way. We've got to be committed to that and nurture that. 
I always tell people when I do premarital counseling, I say, you know, when we stand up there and on your wedding day and, and we're going to say, you know, do you take, you know, this other person to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife and, you know, to keep and to cherish and to value and, and will you be faithful to that person always as long as you both shall live? And it's going to be a high calling. It's going to be a huge commitment uh, on that day. And, and, I, and I always tell these couples, so you've got to go in thinking this is for life. If you go into marriage thinking, well, if this doesn't work out, we can always get a divorce. This I know. You'll probably get a divorce. You know why? Because when the going gets rough, and it will, and, and when marriage gets costly, and it will, uh, at those moments when maybe you're tempted to give up or, or maybe to stray to some other shiny person, uh, at those moments, if you're thinking in the back of your mind, if my marriage doesn't work out, I can always get a divorce. Well, you're just going to stop working on your marriage and investing in it, and you'll start to pursue those other things, right? So, so that's what I tell couples when I'm going to do the wedding. I say, you know what? You've got to go in and say, you know, this is till death do us part. And I'm making a, a lifetime commitment of, of my whole self to a whole lifetime commitment to a very imperfect person. Right? And, and that's what the commitment is. That, that's the deal. That's the deal. So we've got to see this too, not just in terms of, oh, here's another thing. If it's a Christian wedding, and a lot of people want a Christian wedding even if they're not particularly committed to Christ. But I, I tell them, if you, you've asked for a pastor to do a Christian wedding, we're going to stand there before God. And you're going to make your promises not just to each other, but your promises to God. Dear Lord, God, I promise to be faithful to this spouse that you're giving me this day. Okay? And, and so that's a huge thing, right? That it's, it's not just two people trying to work it out and, and you know, make it work in marriage. But before God, making those commitments and promises to God. And then we can ask for God's help. Oh, Lord, give us the patience that we don't have in ourselves. And Lord, help us to overcome our innate selfishness. And God, give us the grace to forgive when we've hurt each other, right? We have God's resources uh, when we commit ourselves to God. So this is what I would say. If you want to guard your own heart, the first thing is commit to the task of guarding your own heart and just make that your assignment and live it before God and make that promise to God. Uh, number two, number two, here's another thing we can do to guard our hearts. Ask the Lord to protect your heart. This is not just sheer will and human volition. Ask the Lord to help you. Uh, do you remember this verse? Uh, this is, let me read a verse from uh, John 15, verse 5. A lot of you may know this verse. But I want you to think about it in the context of relationships. Here's what Jesus says. John 15, verse 5. I am the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we think, well, I can actually do a lot of things apart from you, Lord. But he's saying nothing that really matters, nothing that really counts for eternity. He says, you remain in me. You abide in me, and I'll abide in you, and we're going to stay closely connected. And if we stay closely connected, you are going to bear much fruit in your life. You're going to live a fruitful life, but apart from me, you can do nothing. So I think about this idea about guarding our hearts. We need to go to the Lord and abide in him. In other words, be the branch that is utterly dependent on the vine. Right? Be the branch that is completely dependent on the vine. Lord, you are my life. You are my hope. I need your patience. Right? I need your grace. Uh, I, I, I need your help. You know, one of the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, uh, remember what the last one is? Is self-control, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If there's one thing that's really needed for marriages to be healthy today, it is self-control, right? Watch your mouth, watch your eyes, watch your hands, watch your feet, right? Self-control. That's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So this idea here is if we're really going to guard our hearts well, we, not need, we need to not only commit to the task of guarding our hearts, but we have to ask the Lord to help us. Ask the Lord to protect your heart. Be the branch that is utterly dependent on the vine. You are the vine, we are the branches, and teach us to abide in you. Remember when Jesus gave us the, uh, the Lord's Prayer? And I, I love this, that part of the Lord's Prayer is about this issue of temptation. 
we're prone to wander. So he says, give us, pray this way, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And then remember what's next? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, right there embedded in the Lord's Prayer is this acknowledgement that we're going to face a whole world of temptation all of our lives. And we've got to pray, I suppose, every day. Every day, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil because evil is all around me. And it's not only all around me, but it's in me. Some evil, selfish, immoral desires some temptations to fantasize about things that are really not from God. So ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to protect your heart. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Remember in Philippians 4, verse 13, when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's not all about health and wealth and prosperity and achievement. You know what it is? In the context, he's saying, I know how to be content in the best of times and the worst of times, whether I have plenty or whether I am in want. He says, I know how to be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I want you to think about this too, in this, this issue of guarding our hearts against temptation, that we could say this to, Lord, in my own strength, I am too weak and I'm too frail and I'm too fickle and I don't have enough self-control and self-discipline, but Lord, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so I call upon the Lord to enable me to do what I could not do otherwise. Right? Ask the Lord to protect your heart. Hey, let me give you another one. Establish openness with God. Establish openness with God. I mean, God, He already knows your heart, right? He already knows your fears. He already knows your doubts. And he knows your sins, he knows your regrets, he knows your desires, and he knows your temptations. So be open and honest with him. And there are going to be times where we do something we shouldn't have done or think something we shouldn't have thought. And at those times, you know what you do? You don't run from God and avoid him because you feel so bad. You know what you do? You come to him and you confess your sins. Right? You know that verse of 1 John 1, 9, one of the... Great verses that's so encouraging. You know, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if He didn't do that, if He didn't forgive, and if He didn't cleanse us, then I think if you sin and you disobey God or you're unfaithful to your spouse, man, you better run from God. Because, you know, we, we blew it big time, made a big mess, right? But when God says, you know, if you confess your sin, I'm faithful, I'm righteous to forgive. And I, he can do what no one else can do. He can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we blow it big time, rather than running away from him or avoiding him, we ought to run to him and, and say, Lord, I need you. I need your help. But, but, you know, it takes the courage to be honest and to say, Lord, you know, you know I, I did some things that, that you didn't want me to do and I was very aware of it when I did it, but uh, Lord, please forgive me. He already knows what you've done. He already knows your heart and your fears. He already knows your sins and your desires. So it basically, it just means establish openness with God. Come clean with Him. And don't avoid God when you blow it, but come with confession and with repentance. See, the great thing about being a Christian, I mean, I think there's a lot of great things about being a Christian, but I think, to me, at least, one of the greatest things about being a Christian is when you mess up and you blow it, you can come to Him for forgiveness and cleansing and you can begin anew. And if it weren't for that, I think it'd be a very terrifying thing to be a Christian because you're going to try to walk and live with a holy God who is righteous and, and perfect, and that could be very intimidating, Right? But when you see that he's not only holy and perfect and righteous, but he's also a God of compassion and mercy, and that he longs to be reconciled with people that have been wayward, and he longs to take you back just like the prodigal son. Remember the father runs out to greet his son, and, and he says, this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive, and this, this child of mine was lost, and now she's found. And, and when we see the heart of God,
to me, it should encourage us to say, well, Lord, I'm really sorry I blew it, but I'm coming to you. And thank you that you invite me to come, right? Thank you that you accept me. Thank you that your son Jesus died on that cross to take the punishment for my sins so I don't have to keep punishing myself. When I was in seminary, I, I remember hearing a, a very famous speaker once, uh, Dr. Lloyd Ogilvy, and I still remember one word he said. He said, either you accept the atonement. You know what the atonement is, and Jesus died for our sins. Sometimes they describe atonement, it means at one with, atone. That when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it means we can be at one with God. Now here, here's what Dr. Ogilvy said that day at Fuller Chapel. He says, either you accept the atonement, or you repeat it, right? In other words, I, I accept that Jesus paid the price for my sins, and I receive that freely by his grace with great gratitude. Or I feel like I've got to repeat the atonement. I've got to make up for my sins, and I've got to try to, you know, uh, you know uh, work hard enough and, and do enough good stuff so that it won't be held to my account. And that is an exercise in futility. You'll never do enough good to erase your sins. So either you accept the atonement that Jesus won for us on the cross or you're doomed and condemned to try to repeat the atonement on your own, to work off your own sins. And that's an exercise in futility and I think often leads to despair, right? Okay, establish oneness with God and, and part of that for us is going to mean confession and repentance and receiving his forgiveness. Let me give you another one about guard your heart. Okay, we said commit to the task of guarding your own heart. Ask the Lord to protect your heart. Establish oneness with God and an open, honest, vulnerable relationship with God. Here's another one, number four. Keep short accounts with your spouse. If you're married, keep short accounts with your spouse. Uh, here's a verse from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And this is from the the original New Living Translation, 1996. It's kind of a paraphrase, but here's what it says. 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat her with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. If you don't treat her as you should, your prayers will not be heard. Did you catch that last part? It's kind of jarring, isn't it? If you don't treat your spouse the way you should, your prayers will not be heard. And, and you know, it, it means you know, if I'm not treating my wife well, that's going to affect not just my marriage and my relationship with her. You know, it's, it's going to affect my relationship with my kids too, isn't it? If, if I'm not treating my, my spouse well. But you know who else it affects? If I'm not treating my wife well, according to 1 Peter 3, verse 7, if I'm not treating my wife well, that's going to affect my prayer life. That's going to affect my relationship with God in some mysterious but scary way. It's a, you know, like we, we think we're doing well with God, but you're not really doing well with God if you're mistreating the people that God's put in your life. If I'm unloving, if I'm unforgiving, if I'm judgmental, if I'm condemning, if I'm lustful, Right? If, if, I'm, if I'm mistreating the people that God has put into my life, that's going to affect my relationship with God. I think maybe that's why Jesus says, you know, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then he says, and the second is like it. Like it. And, you know, the second greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. But I think Jesus is saying not that these two commandments are the same, but he's saying there's a very close connection. There's a very close interaction here between loving God and loving your neighbor. If I truly love God, I'm going to love my neighbor even if they seem kind of unlovable, right? But if I'm not loving my neighbor, then I can't just say, oh, praise God, God is love, you know. It's going to affect my relationship with God as well. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 gets very explicit here, and he's saying that you're, the way you treat your spouse, if you're treating your spouse in a hurtful way or a neglectful way, uh, he says that's going to really affect your spiritual life as well. We may, not, we may not like that. We don't want to hear that. But that is the truth. That is the truth. Keep short accounts with your spouse. If there's something that you've got to resolve or get taken care of or confess, uh, take care of it. It's going to affect not only your marriage, it's going to affect your, your spiritual life, your relationship with the Lord as well. That makes sense? 
I don't know. Sometimes I think, man, I wish he hadn't said that. But Peter said it because the Lord said it. I believe this is the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. If you don't treat your wife as you should, your prayers will not be heard. Now, I think, although it doesn't directly say this, I think by implication, wives got to think the same way. If you don't treat your husband the way you should, lovingly, respectfully, right, it's going to affect your spiritual life as well. It's going to affect your ability to pray and to hear from God. It sounds like, if you take this at face value, it's going to affect God's willingness to hear your prayers. If you don't treat your spouse as you should, your prayers will not be heard. So that's sobering. Keep short accounts with your spouse. If there's something that, that you know, is coming between you, uh, you know, don't just be passive and, and let it happen and, and let it go on week after week, month after month, sometimes year after year, right? Uh, take care of it. Let me mention one more thing about guarding your own heart, and that would be be accountable to others. Uh, first of all, you should be accountable to God and then to your spouse, but uh, also maybe we need some other people to be accountable to. The enemy loves to isolate you from relationships with godly friends. And I know this. I think sometimes when people are going through a, a doubt, doubts about God or a spiritual struggle, then they feel bad about being with Christians because they're thinking secretly, I'm not sure if I believe what they believe and I don't know if I'm in sync. And so there gets to be this temptation of just withdrawing from fellowship because you're not sure if you're really in sync, right? And uh, you don't want to feel like a hypocrite like pretending I'm a Christian when I'm not sure if I am, right? So there's a temptation to just withdraw. And you know what that does? It just removes you from the very environment where you're most likely to experience the reality of God and see, and see God and sense His presence. You remember when, when Jesus uh, was resurrected from the dead and that first Easter morning and He appeared to His frightened disciples who were locked in the upper room for fear of the, of the Jews and the Romans. And uh, Jesus appears in their midst, and they're overjoyed because they recognize that Jesus has actually risen from the dead. This incredible, unbelievable miracle has happened, and Jesus has risen from the dead. And, and the way uh, the book of John tells it, um, one, of the, one of the 12 was missing that day. Remember that? His name was Thomas. And uh, so the disciples, afterward, they're saying, hey, Thomas, we saw Jesus. He's risen. It's incredible. You should have been there, you know? That's what you get for missing church. And, um, and remember Thomas, Thomas is a cynic. Now, for 2,000 years now, we have known him as Doubting Thomas, right? Because Thomas says, well, unless I see him with my own eyes and put my, my hands in, in the wounds in his hands and, and, and I feel the wounds in his feet, I will not believe. So he's been labeled Doubting Thomas, right? Now, I want you to think about how that story ends. One week later, the disciples are gathered again in the upper room. And Jesus appears again, the resurrected Christ. He made resurrection appearances res uh, for about 40 days after, after his uh, death and his initial resurrection. Uh, so so uh, one week later, he, Jesus appears in that locked room again and appears to his disciples and, and he says, peace be with you and all that. And then he says to Thomas, Thomas, you know, come feel the wounds in my hands and feet. Stop doubting and believe. Now, I want you to think about this. Aren't you a little surprised Thomas is there? I mean, isn't Thomas the, the cynic, the skeptic, the doubter, the one who said, I won't believe. I don't believe that, you know, you can tell me whatever you want to tell me. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. The thing I love about Thomas is he's still there a week later. He's still, you know, he's, he doesn't believe what they believe at this point. He's not convinced, and yet he's still in the fellowship. He's still hanging around among the people who say they saw Jesus and they know Jesus. And because he's there, Thomas too gets to see Jesus. And when Jesus says, he invites him, you know, feel the wounds and, and touch the wounds and all that. We, we, the Bible doesn't tell us that he did that, that Thomas responded. What, what the Bible tells us is that Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And he became convinced that day. And he, uh, renew, I guess we would say he renewed his commitment to Jesus, but now the risen and exalted Jesus. And uh, church history tells us that uh, Bible doesn't say this, but church tradition tells us that that man Thomas uh, went to India and pioneered the Christian movement in India. And there are people in India still that trace their Christian heritage to Thomas, the doubter, who became again a believer. 
So I do want to say this, that uh, it's really important for us to have friends who believe, who can stir us and spur us on. In Hebrews 10, it says, let us consider, let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And when, when my faith falters, you can encourage me. And when your faith falters, I can encourage you. And, and when you're experiencing temptation and afraid that you might yield to it, you can reach out to someone and say, you know, hey, pray for me. I'm struggling. Pray for me. The enemy loves to isolate you from relationships with godly people. So ask God to give you some godly friends that you can be real with and vulnerable with. And ask one another tough questions. Questions like these. Have you been reading your Bible? Is your prayer life consistent? What unconfessed sin might be blocking God's work in you? Well, there's a good question, isn't it? What unconfessed sin might be blocking God's work in you? What impure thoughts, motives, or attitudes need to be rooted out? Ask God. Ask God to bring people into your life who will help you guard your heart. So what happened to that man, David, that called into the radio? Did he confess to his wife? If he did, did she forgive him? Here's how the story ends. Gary and Barb Rosberg write this. A few weeks went by and then David called again. Maybe the radio talk show. Uh, we often won't, won't take repeat callers on the program, but you couldn't keep us away from that call. Gary and Barb, David began, I need to tell you the rest of the story. Two nights ago, after a lot of prayer, I approached Joanne with a broken heart and told her of my affair ten years ago. She was in shock and very angry, and we both cried, and I asked Joanne to prayerfully consider a do-over, giving me and our marriage a fresh start. What did she say, Barb asked. She said, not now. Not yet. We went to sleep exhausted, but I stared at the ceiling half the night, wondering if the morning would bring any relief. What will happen when she wakes up and realizes it wasn't a bad dream? Will she still want me? Can she ever forgive me? Well, that had to be tough, I said. And David continued. A few hours ago, this is two days after he confessed to his wife, right? A few hours ago, at my office, I received an email from her. It contained just these words. Do over, granted. I sat in my office with tears streaming down my face, thanking God that my marriage could begin to heal. We still have a long way to go, but I know God doesn't want this marriage to end. It really, it is really just the beginning. Do I deserve this wonderful woman and her forgiveness? No way. But I am thankful that she loves God enough to believe that we can begin again. Well, let's pray. So take a minute and just talk with God. Or maybe take a minute and just listen to God. And see if there's something he wants to speak into your life. Some of us today, we just need to hear the words if we confess our sins God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess to him and receive his forgiveness. Some of us today, we need to hear the words the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we need to ask the Lord to give us strength to resist a temptation that we're facing 
right now. Perhaps some of us need to hear the words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, we've been talking about relationships these last two months. Some that work and some that don't. We've seen a lot of areas of need. Threats to our families, to our marriages. And yet, Lord, you have given us everything we need to be strong against temptation. Help us to set our eyes straight ahead to guard where our feet will take us, to guard the things that we allow to come out of our mouths that are inappropriate. And Lord, most of all, help us to guard our hearts, that we might have a heart that's steadfast for you, that we might seek you with all of our hearts. And I do want to pray, Lord, for troubled marriages and troubled families represented right here in this room. And ask for your grace and mercy to begin healing. As your people begin to take the steps that we need to take, Lord, steps of responsibility, steps of humility, maybe steps that come out of our own brokenness and need. But we ask, Lord, that your grace would cover our families heal our marriages, heal strained and broken relationships with children or with parents. You are the life giver. You're the great lover, Lord. And may the love of Jesus fill our hearts and our homes. We pray in his name.